0: Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza, and today we'll be talking about human genetics and nation building in the Middle East with Elise Burton. Elise, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Elise Burton just earned her PhD in History and Middle Eastern Studies from Harvard, May 2017. Congratulations, Elise. Thank you. She also has a BA in Middle Eastern Studies and Integrative Biology from UC Berkeley, which was earned in May 2010. And come October, she'll be a junior research fellow at Newnham College in the University of Cambridge. Today, we'll be joined by two co-hosts, Chris Grayton, whom you all know. Hello. And Miriam Patton. Hi, Shereen. Elise, your dissertation focuses on the history of genetics, mostly human genetics, in the modern Middle East. And though you have three case studies, Turkey, Israel, and Iran, today we'll be talking a little bit more about Turkey. Can you give us a little bit of the lay of the land of your of your research? Sure so I came to this
1: project uh, really at the end of my BA as a result of my you know my joint major in biology and my experience working in an evolutionary genetics lab um, and my own knowledge of modern Middle Eastern history. So something that I, came across and was really sort of disturbed by in human genetics is the tendency to use population labels that may seem nowadays to be very intuitive, but in fact are highly politically contingent and in most cases, recent inventions. So for example, in one of the textbooks I would use, I would see, for example, Jews, So. DNA samples from Jews now living in Israel, compared to samples that would be labeled Lebanese, Saudi Arabian, Egyptian, as though these populations uh, living in modern states today are representative of populations living thousands of years in the past. And this brought me to a set of major questions which really formed the core of my dissertation research. How do these labels come to be used and normalized within human genetics research? So these labels are are historically produced not only by Western geneticists, by which I mean geneticists working in Europe and North America, but by the interface of such Western scientists working with populations and local scientists in the Middle East themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. So can you tell us about the cases you study in your dissertation?
1: I wanted to address these um, questions using a comparative context, um, because the existing historiography on science in the Middle East generally, and the little bit of research that has already been done on genetics in the Middle East, has tended to focus only on single national contexts. So the most well-known nowadays would probably be Nadia Abu El excellent work on the Israeli case and, and studies of Jewish genetics. Um, and then there's a little bit of very excellent work that's been done, for example, on eugenics in Turkey and, um, and sort of racialized anthropological concepts in early Republican Turkey. And what these studies tend to argue is that these are processes of nation-building which are very locally specific. And what I wanted to do by by doing a comparative study, so comparing Israel to Turkey um, to a place that's totally not been looked at at all, like Iran, is to try to find out whether these nation-building processes and their entanglements with genetics, are they really unique? Or can we make Can we draw regional and then even international conclusions about the way that genetic science is done? So that was what led me to uh, commit to a a comparative project. Mm -hmm. Um, Although, of course, this added a lot of additional difficulties um, to what I could do. I needed to study three different languages, of course, which are not at all related to one another. Um, The source bases for each of these three countries were highly uneven. So, for example, from Israel, there was a lot more um, information I could find in terms of archived correspondence. In Turkey, I found very little of that. I had to rely predominantly on the published um, scientific work of Turkish scientists. In Iran, I had to rely on a mix of that and um, actually oral histories that I could find of Iranian scientists and Western scientists who had worked within Iran.
0: At least, I think that the the broader goal here of reflecting on the history of genetics as a whole, uh, sort of zooming out, as you say, from the Middle East, will bring and has brought and will continue to bring really stimulating insights to the history of science as a whole, because so much of the work has really zoomed out from Western contexts. That's
1: right. Thank you for saying that. And um, actually what I found to be one of the major fruits of this comparative project is that what I find for each of these countries isn't specifically a local phenomenon. Um, One thing I definitely would not want anyone to assume is that, for example, genetic research in Turkey or in Israel is... somehow more nationalist or more inflected by social conditions than the research that is done in Western contexts. Mm. So what I'm hoping will come out of my dissertation and you know future book manuscript um, is that these case studies I've done within the Middle East um, can tell us a lot about the overall international practice of human genetics.
3: So Elise, with your case studies of Turkey, Israel and Iran, I'm just curious, did you find any sort of general findings or trends that were applicable to all or were they all pretty unique?
1: Um, Yes, what I would say is the broadest, most overarching trend that certainly applies to all three is that the development and introduction of new genetic technologies did not perhaps surprisingly have a major effect um, or transformation on how different populations in these countries were defined or on how those different populations were being related um, in terms of Um, ethnic and religious minorities to um, what you might call the titular national population. Um, So even though in my dissertation, I start at the early 20th century looking at um, anthropometry. So for example, skull measurements, uh, and then I move through um, basic what's called, what's now called seroanthropology, so looking at the frequencies of something as basic as ABO blood types, and move on and on through more advanced genetic technologies until you're looking at entire genome sequences, I find that interpretations of the results are not technologically determined in any sense. They're actually largely defined um, according to sources of information that we would consider not biological. And that's something that you see strongly in each of the three cases.
0: Could you give us an example for Iran, maybe? Yeah, so I think um, the
1: most salient example from Iran would probably be uh, the Zoroastrian community. So hopefully most members of the audience will have at least heard of Zoroastrians as belonging to a very ancient um, religious community, um, which now is also sort of conflated into an ethnic community as a result of practices of um, marriage and conversion, namely um, the belief that nobody converts to Zoroastrian, uh, sorry, to Zoroastrianism. Um, No one can marry into the community, and any Zoroastrian who marries a non-Zoroastrian is effectively expelled from the community and no longer considered a Zoroastrian. Um, So these are these sort of facts about what constitutes the Zoroastrian community, we believe those to be ancient. You know, we're talking about generations, hundreds and hundreds of years of this kind of communitarian boundary making. Um, And those are the assumptions that Iranian scientists and later Western scientists working with those Iranian scientists Mm. brought into their research. But... Um, historians or religious scholars would would know or be able to find examples where people did, in fact, convert to Zoroastrian, Zoroastrianism hundreds of years ago and so forth. Um, and yet, all of the genetic research that's been done in the 20th century relies very strongly on this premise that there's no way to enter the Zoroastrian community.
2: So it can become very circular in that regard because you have an a priori definition of a community as, you know, endogamous and and separate. And then using genetic research, you try to identify what the genetic makeup of that community is, but you've already essentially taken it for granted.
1: That is exactly correct. And I'm certainly not the first person to point out this process. It's been done in a myriad of other contexts as well. Um, But it's often focused, um, especially the research that's been done on the United States or Europe, in terms of racial definitions. Mm -hmm. So determining what African-Americans are, for example. Um, But if you look at the case of the Zoroastrians, what's also very interesting is that Zoroastrians have a specific meaning um, for the construction of Iranian national identity more broadly, even Mm -hmm. for Iranians who are not members of the Zoroastrian
2: community. Because they're taking it as indigenous, essentially, like in a primordial indigenous community.
1: That's exactly right. So because of the Zoroastrians' claims, um, to to having like this very closed community. Um, What geneticists have taken to mean from that is that Zoroastrians can be representative, uh, they're a reservoir, an ancient gene pool that can be used as a stand-in for the entire ancient Iranian population.
2: And that's interesting when you look at it in the comparison with Israel, for example, when there's been a lot of uh, genomic research on, like, for example, the Jewish diaspora, and also taking that community as Relatively closed off, but then by that same logic, they would be the primordial population of the modern Middle East by Mm. the logic that's employed in that research.
1: That's exactly right. And one thing that I found um, the more I dug into the history of Jewish genetic research, so going um, even farther back than some of the existing studies do, these researchers who were both Jewish and non Jewish were constantly plagued by the question of actually which community out of all of the diasporic communities of Jews that exist today, which of those communities is what they would sometimes refer to as the typus, the mm-hmm. original Jew? So, which community um, could represent the original biblical community of Jews of ancient Judea, and as you said, perhaps of the entire, you know, biblical era Middle East? And what's fascinating is that different researchers. Came up with different communities that they believed to be this original type. Um, so, for some time, uh, the Yemenite Jews were considered to be the best representative of this ancient Jewish population, and others, you know, motivated by different, you know, ideological considerations, actually tried to argue that Ashkenazim perhaps were the better representatives of the original ancient Jews.
3: So, Elise, let's discuss this further by focusing in on the case of Turkey. After the First World War, the Republic of Turkey is born as a new nation state and reconceptualizations of race and ethnicity, specifically with regard to Turkishness, figure prominently among the research agendas across different fields of inquiry from linguistics and folklore uh, to history and anthropology. Could you tell us about the early Sira anthropology and anthropometry practice in Turkey and elaborate on how they are part of the broader national intellectual project?
1: Absolutely. Um, So as you mentioned, um, one of the biggest issues um, that's helping the Turkish Academy to take shape in the early Republican period is this question of what are the Turks Mm. and how can we define what they are, not only as citizens of a state, um, but in terms of a nation that has a history, that has a, a racial category, because in the early 20th century, this was taken very seriously. Characters who we might now um, recognize for their achievements in different fields of research were deeply embedded in this sort of um, historico-scientific project to identify the boundaries of Turkishness. Um, So one of the best examples of this is the case of Afet Inan, who is one of the adopted daughters of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk himself. She, I think, is now perhaps best known as a historian um, and for her involvement in the creation of the Turkish history thesis. Um, But actually, her doctoral degree, which she earned in Switzerland, was based around a large anthropometric survey, um, which was held in Turkey in the mid-1930s. And so the entire apparatus of the state was actually involved in her doctoral dissertation research. Um, What they did is send out, um, you know, really hundreds of people, these are doctors who were employed by the state to go out to different regions of Turkey and take measurements of Turkish citizens. And so we're talking about skull measurements, we're talking about height and weight, hair color and texture, eye color, nose shape and size, all the sorts of things that we would now not consider very, you know, relevant to genetic research. Um, but at the time, this was a, ma- a massive, you know, national undertaking. And the results of her dissertation were to create a set of biological parameters, um, a set of averages of these physical, of these, you know, what she identified as the quintessential Turkish physical features and to help categorize them amidst existing racial classifications that, you know, largely it was European
0: anthropologists had come up with. A lot of these, uh, these types of category- categories that uh, she would have been working with may be familiar to listeners from the history of eugenics. But as it seems from what you're saying, this is at the time very mainstream science in Switzerland, I would say it was
1: the mainstream science all over the world, to be Hmm. honest. This is not something that was considered to be pseudoscience. Remember um, that there was no real other way of measuring hereditary traits at this time. Um, So now we hear the term eugenics and uh, we associate it with being pseudoscience or flawed science. But in its day, eugenics was simply the word that we would now use as genetics. So... uh, we have to look at this from the historical perspective and understand that this, um, although we may, we may now look upon it and wonder what is the purpose of defining a Turkish race um, and, and, and see clearly that there's actually no true biological or ancestral meaning to the information that they're generating. Um, but this research was actually very much in reaction to European definitions Of the Turk, Hmm. so let's remember um, that by the end of the 19th century, the prevailing understanding of Turks and who they were among you know the racial hierarchy of nations is they were largely perceived to belong to the so-called yellow race or the Mongoloid race, um, to be you know descendants of Central Asians, to have a lot of Mongol admixture. The going understanding was that they were not Europeans. Right. And um, so, a, what a lot of um, the research that Af- Afet Inan and her immediate colleagues were trying to do was to resituate Turks as a European people, as inherently equal um, racially, culturally, intellectually right. to other Europeans. So, that was the, the main goal, the function of this research.
2: And we can see this reflected in the broader like Kemalist project of, of the interwar period, whether in, in dress or, or law codes, or of course, changing the alphabet from an Arabic alphabet to a Latin-based alphabet. And, you know, I've encountered it as well in sort of the, the global history of, of things like pastoralism, where Turkish geographers working in tandem with European geographers, for example, would try to define modes of pastoralism in Turkish Anatolia, uh, as somehow analogous to what's found in the Alps or in Spain or in Italy uh, and in sharp contrast to the types of pastoralism that were practiced in, in regions throughout the Middle East of, of Arab and, and, and Kurdish uh, populations. So the phenomenon you're talking about is not just you know, trying to define what is distinct about the Turkish people sort of biologically, right. genetically, mm-hmm. but also uh, how they are related to the populations that surround them.
1: That's absolutely right. Yes. Um, And one of the the more fascinating types of claims that we just start to see, um, especially when we move into early Turkish uh, seroanthropology, as you mentioned, so seroanthropology is really just uh, blood group research, um, which was becoming popular in the 1920s onward. Um, Once they started to do that kind of research, not on as quite of broad as a scale, as we saw Afet-Inan doing with the anthropometry, mm-hmm. um, from this blood type research, they started making claims about not only that Turks are European or belong to a European race, but that Turks are actually, in fact, the ancestors to all other Europeans. Um, so what's fascinating here is that they're not simply trying to recategorize categorize themselves from Mongolo- from Mongoloid to Caucasoid. Um, but they're trying to basically argue that all of the achievements of European civilization, the traits that different European populations have, if you go back far enough, these are all actually the products of an ancient, you know, Turkish civilization, Turkish ethnicity. So I
3: guess related to Chris's point earlier about sort of a priori conclusions drawn before the research, this shift you're talking about, about defining what Turks are because they've been perceived to being not European to the shift now you're suggesting of, based on this blood group research, um, possibly even some sort of ancestor to the Europeans. Do you think that shift, or in your research, was that shift a result of the findings that these scientists were looking at, or was there a shift in sort of political thought and national consciousness that then sort of seeped downward? into the science. Basically what I'm asking is sort of, can you figure out like the direction between the conclusion the science versus the... I
1: I understand what you're saying, but actually (laughs) I think the way that I would approach it is to argue that um, there is no one-way directionality from one to the other. I would in fact argue that both um, the concepts that the science is able to generate and um, the political and social context are Mutually constitutive. Right. So, the entire um, idea, you know, some of the core ideas about nationalism, for example, the idea that you can have a community that has a shared ancestry, are directly related to the fact that at the same time nationalism is becoming a major political force, you are developing um, scientific means of tracing ancestry. So, in that sense, um, you, you cannot actually disentangle and argue, for example, that this is just a matter of bias, that mm-hmm. scientists are exclusively political actors, they only have political motivations, and they are just imposing um, imposing these conclusions on the data what, regardless of what the data actually says. Um, in fact, it's it's not at all that simple, right? It's that the way that they conduct the research at its very core, is embedded in the categories they choose to label populations, which populations they decide are interesting for their study. All of those are related to their positions um, in society, to the training they've had both within their own countries. And, you know, most of them were going abroad to the West for their advanced degrees. All of these things are deeply intertwined and you can't simply um, observe a linear progression between uh, um, like a certain political idea and a specific scientific outcome,
2: and this has all been so transparently legible to you know historians of the of the social sciences during that period, you know who might look back with a smirk from the present at some of the uh, far fetched linguistic or historical claims that were that were leveled during this time period, but to see how scientific practice is equally shaped by sort of the parameters of the experiment in a way which are, are cultural constructs and, and, and discursively um, right. framed uh, really points to, you know, the fundamental methodology, I guess, of history of science, right? Studying science uh, uh, in its, its social context. So I'd like you to talk more about your research uh, in that angle, the scientists and the institutions and political economies they were embedded in and, mm-hmm. and sort of the, that, that broader context in Turkey.
1: Right, so something that's um, that becomes very clear in the research that I I didn't necessarily think about when I first started this project is how the vast majority of the actors who were involved in creating anthropological concepts about the Turks um, were actually first and foremost trained as medical doctors, as mm-hmm. physicians so, So what's fascinating is that there's a deep entanglement between medical education, medical practice, and the construction of these racial ideas, um, these ideas about what the national community is and how we can define it in biological terms. Um, So what I've mentioned so far in terms of Afet Inan and some of these early workers in seroanthropology is... um, They were affiliated with institutions like the the Turkish Anthropological Institute. Um, They had training in social science um, fields, but an equal number of them were trained um, in medicine. And I would say that definitely after World War II and from that period onward, particularly in Turkey, um, genetic research is carried out almost exclusively by members of the medical profession.
2: And by that, you mean it's, it piggybacks on medicine. The doctors who are administering treatment are also sampling blood and this kind of stuff.
1: That's right. In fact, that's how they have access to the blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the data that um, that is used to try to draw anthropological conclusions is not specifically sampled for anthropological purposes, or in fact, for any study at all. Rather, it's taken from blood banks and from... Hospitals and other um, sort of blood transfusion like needs. And it's only um, as sort of an ancillary product that they um, create these analyses of the frequencies of specific kinds of blood types. And once we get past World War II, we're not talking only about ABO, but the many other kinds of blood types that we don't hear about much as uh, lay people. Um, but the more sort of sources of proteins in the blood that can be um, shown to vary between populations um, and are identified as part of regular medical practice, these all get brought into the surface. Uh, sorry, into the service of drawing more and more anthropological conclusions about um, the history of the Turks as a people, um, their relationship to other non-Turkish populations, both in the Middle East and around the world. So what I'm getting at here is that um, even people who who see their work as primarily having a medical purpose are coming up with conclusions uh, that we now consider to be strictly anthropological.
0: Elise, to bring this back to one of the earlier exam- examples that you gave us about Iran and the search for what makes a true Persian or a true Iranian in the Zoroastrian community as a community that maybe existed as an indigenous group sort of before time or in primordial time, um, do you see similar searches in Turkey for an, a group that is indigenously and truly Turkish, and how does how do these definitions and the the process of building these definitions interact with the many other ethnic groups in Turkey?
1: Yeah, so one of the distinguishing features about the Turkish case is that there's not one specific group that's immediately and then consistently seized upon as representing the original Turkish people, and part of that is this sort of um, lingering confusion at what the Turks are supposed to be. So are they, um, you know, these indigenous Central Asians who've migrated over thousands of years and now have made their homeland in Anatolia? Well, that's somewhat problematic. So we have to also talk about those peoples we know were autochthonous to Anatolia and try to see how they um, fit into modern Turkish identity. Um, And many people will be familiar of the example of the Hittites, um, and how the Hittites have uh, been sort of taken as the quintessential autochthonous Anatolians. And, um, and, and so like the, the going idea was that uh, for a long time is that modern Turks are sort of a conglomeration of some Central Asian elements and some Hittite elements. And then there was also this argument that, oh, the Hittites probably were also originally from Central Asia. Um, So things got very complicated. Um, Because the
2: Hittites were classified as Indo-Europeans.
1: That's exactly right. And it's known that their language, for example, um, is Indo-European, whereas Turkish is an Altaic language. So the linguistic um, aspect, as you mentioned earlier, is always deeply intertwined with Uh these racial concepts, these biological and ethnic concepts.
2: And of course, in the Hittite, Empire, sort of predating the uh, the rise of Greek and Armenian polities in Anatolia, we can understand the, context, the the role this plays in the post-war context of Turkey.
1: Right. It was incredibly important to try to establish an, a claim to this territory um, that could really sort of out-compete these, these other nationalisms, which also had, you know, what we could see are equally... Um, you know, valid claims to the territory. Um, And one of the more fascinating uh, examples I came across in this idea about the Hittites and what their ethnicity may be, um, is actually a specific minority group which now lives um, in southeastern uh, Mediterranean area of Turkey, which I, I think are now best referred to as the Nusayri Alawites, or otherwise known as the Arab Alawites, to distinguish them from Alevis. Mm-hmm. They are an Arabic-speaking group, which is distributed around the provinces of Hatay, Mersin, that region. So I'll, I'll back up just a little bit to examine how they became a population of interest to Turkish anthropologists and to Turkish uh, Positions, um, and see how they became a a group that um, really since the 1930s has played an outsized role actually in Turkish genetic literature. So the story of how this happens really goes all the way back to the end of the First World War and the contentious process by which the boundaries of modern Turkey were drawn. Um, So some of the audience may be familiar with the problem presented by the Sanjak of Iskanderun or Alexandretta, um, which now belongs to Turkey as the province of Hatay. Now, in the 1930s, this province, this territory was being administered by the French as part of the French mandate of Syria. And there was a, a strong uh, dispute between the early Turkish Republic and, you know, the growing... Um, you know, the Syrian mandate, so the Syrians who are resident there, over this piece of territory. So the way that the League of Nations tries to settle this territorial dispute, as they so often do, is through an ethnic census. So basically, they were going to interview the people of Iskanderun, and see how many Turks there were and how many Arabs there were, and then decide accordingly which state should end up with this territory. Now, the Turks were very concerned because they they essentially knew at the outset that if it came down to simple numbers, um, the number of Turkish speakers would probably not result in them being um, granted this territory. Uh, so they actually began a fairly aggressive campaign of propaganda, which was bolstered by the uh, both linguists, anthropologists, and so on um, to make a connection with one of the Arabic-speaking religious minorities in the province, which as I mentioned are uh, are the Alawites. So this is actually the same religious group to, to which Bashar al-Assad and his family in Syria belongs. Um, and what the Turks tried to argue through their arsenal of academics was that the Alawites are not in fact racially Arab. They may speak Arabic, but they have a totally distinct line of descent, which uh, makes them close relatives of the Turks and not just any Turks, but the Hittite Turks. Mm. So the the Arabic-speaking Alawites in Turkish um, literature of this time came to be referred to as Eti Turkler, so literally mm. Hittite Turks.
2: And Hatay, of course, meaning the place of the Hittites. That's so th- exactly right. Yes.
1: So it all fits together into the specific narrative they came up for this piece of territory. Um, and then in 1939, um, the the French agree to, uh, to allow Turkey to annex this province, which becomes known as Hatay. Um, so this is... This is the origin story of how these Arabic-speaking Alawites first come to be known as Eti-Turks. And then, about 20 years later, we see it coming up in a completely separate genetic discourse. The way this happens is that um, a a Turkish hematologist by the name of Muzaffar Aksoy, who is trained in Istanbul... And he also, you know, he uh, has connections abroad to the United States and prominent hematologists there. He ends up going to a government hospital in Mersin, so not specifically in Hattay. Um, But he comes to know these Arabic-speaking Alawites through his experiences as a government doctor in Mersin, um, and he finds that this specific population has um, a higher frequency of a uh, basically what you would call a hereditary blood defect. They have an abnormal form of hemoglobin.
2: And these are usually associated with regions where there's endemic malaria for a long time period in the genetic research, right?
1: In this specific case, yes, that is correct. Um, So their abnormal hemoglobin results in something that's that's similar to sickle cell anemia, for example. And so what happens is he wants, is Muzaffar Akshay wants to publish this research, but he's not sure how to refer to this special population, and he doesn't want to refer to them as Arabs. Right. So in his early publications, he just refers to them as a special community, a distinct community. He doesn't give them a name, but he Mm -hmm. mentions that they're Arabic speaking and that they generally don't intermarry with the general population in in later publications, especially as he interacts more and more um, with, in this case specifically, British scientists who are working on the same abnormal hemoglobin, um, he comes up with this, he draws out from the past this title of the Etty Turks and starts using it to refer mm. to this population. Mm-hmm. And you can see in some of these co-authored publications, he, he writes um, with the British scientists, that there's clearly a bit of ambiguity that the British scientists don't quite understand why there is this population of Arabic speakers that their Turkish collaborator is so convinced are not ethnically and racially Arab. Because uh, uh, as the publications go on, you see that he makes a very strong argument. He says, they may speak Arabic, but they are not ethnically Arab. And at the time, the British scientists are doing a lot of work on the rest of the Middle East, on other Arabic-speaking populations. And they are keenly interested to see a relationship between these Arabic-speaking Alawites and other populations that they've sampled in places ranging from Yemen all across the Arabian Peninsula. They want to find some kind of hereditary link. But their Turkish collaborator is adamant that there is no such relation, so that's one interesting example of how these sort of nationally inflected labels can really determine the course of the research and uh, and also determine the relationships that exist between local uh, Middle Eastern collaborators and their fellow scientists in Western countries.
2: And while again we are, we're we're speaking about this with a with a great deal of skepticism. Absolutely. We have to remind our listeners and this might come out in our our special secret bonus segment that you'll be able to find on our website that some of this these narratives, and this research about genetic history of of the Middle East does work its way into the Anglo-American genetics and the the western genetics. So that for example, today, um it is believed that a, a, a vast portion of the European population has a lot of DNA that came mm-hmm. from the Middle East and the Fertile Crescent as mm-hmm. part of as part of a mass migration essentially proving I mean affirming what uh, Turkish genetic researchers were saying right
1: Yes obviously for wholly different reasons but you could argue um, that some of uh, what we consider to be the most cutting-edge science of today, is coming up with results that look quite a bit like what right. the earliest Turkish Republican scientists were trying to argue about the relationship between Turks and other Middle Easterners and Europeans.
3: Elise, so I'm curious about something you just briefly mentioned at the end there about interactions between scientists and local populations. Do you have any evidence about local reactions, for instance, of the Alawites or the Eti to being told that they were not ethnically Arab? but instead Turkish, how they reacted to this, or why, for instance, Aksoy even used the term "et turk if that hadn't been in its circulation?
1: It's a very good question. Um, for some of the other populations and case studies I've done in my dissertation, I do have very clear evidence of what people thought about, uh, essentially, whether their own narratives and origin myths were correct or not correct according to genetic data. Um, for the specific case of Aksoy and the Etty Turks, the Alawites, I don't have um, direct evidence as to the opinion of anyone within the community, uh, what they thought about the research, what they thought about this label that was being used. But I, I do have evidence about why Aksoy, as he himself claimed, chose to use that term. Because as I said, there was a significant temporal gap between when that term was first coined for the Alawites and when Aksoy, who again was not an anthropologist or a linguist, but a medical doctor investigating a medical question, how he came to use this term, um, which we now would consider to be absolutely nationally loaded and perhaps not the best uh, label that he could use, right? So we have on the record um, in oral history Interview that was done with Muzaffar Aksoy sometime before his death, um, I think in the late 1990s, and uh, we also have one biography which was written actually by several of his students, and in both of those sources, um, he is directly asked why he chose to use the label Etitürk for this population, and his response is is really quite fascinating. He he says that at the time he was doing this research, the population, so the Alawites, were referred to by other non-Alawites in the city by the term "fella," which is, you know, quite a derogatory term um, with a lot of, you know, various negative connotations about ancestry and um, socioeconomic class. And Aksoy says he didn't want to use this term, but rather than asking them what they would like to be called, he says directly um, that he used the term which, you know, Atatürk in his wisdom had come up with for this people. Um, So what's interesting about this anecdote is that Aksoy doesn't have a have an explicit motivation to tying this community back to the Hittites or to making, um, you know, specific claims about their relationship between Turks and Arabs, when he uses this term. Um, In his mind, he's just doing something that's complementary for the population.
2: I mean, it says so much about, you know, normative categories, uh, social categories and how they shape. The research you've been talking about, it's, it's, a, it's a point that we continue to stress throughout our conversation that the a priori ideas about uh, ancestry and race, but also like the, the connotations that different racial classifications have in, in political and social context, in a lot of ways, uh, fundamentally shapes uh, the research of, of the people you're looking at.
1: That's absolutely right. And that it also has all kinds of unintended consequences at the time that these labels are first generated and first applied to the science. For example, you could consider the fact that as recently as 2006, 2007, I've been able to find English language genetics publications, which actually still use the term EtiTurk to refer to data generated from this
0: community. Elise, this really leads nicely into the final portion of the discussion we have planned, but first we'll take a break with some music.
1: قلب لا اشتاهو الهاد المجال مازال
3: حي مازال ما نسمح شي لو يصير عليها القتال
1: وقد رسي نلقاه يا حبابي وقتها شمراه
0: Welcome back. I'm Shireen Hamza here with Chris Grayton, Miriam Patton, and Elise Burton, who is sharing her research with us on the history of genetics and nation building in the Middle East. Elise, this example that you've just laid out for us in such rich detail about Muzaffar Aksoy really gives us a different picture of um, the history of genetics in a colonial or post-colonial scientific context. It's not the story of a western geneticist coming and collecting samples and leaving and analyzing the details elsewhere and publishing them in western languages. It's a story of collaboration between Western scientists, local elites, and the populations of interest to them. In explaining uh, the example of Aksoy, I think you also got into um, some of the details of how collaborators in different locations, in this case in Britain and in Turkey, may have different interests and different contexts in the the work that they're trying to produce. How do you see this? playing out in other examples and in this example? And how does this really shape genetics?
1: That's a very good question to end on, I think. Um, So what's fascinating about this example I gave is that although, as I mentioned, you can read within the publications Produced by Oxoy and um, and his British collaborators, that that there is some tension, some ambiguity between what each member of the research team understands about the Etiturks and why they should be called such a thing. What is their relationship to the Arabs? All members of the team may not agree because they are each bringing in uh, their own, um, you know, sort of background. It, in regards to their the process by which they were professionalized as a scientist. So obviously, Aksoy is bringing to the table a different conception of what it means to be an Alawite, mm-hmm. what he refers to mm-hmm. as an Eti-Turk in Turkey, and the British scientists have a totally different idea of how to categorize populations, which since they are preoccupied with uh, studying Arabs in their own um, sort of Britain's leftover colonial domains, uh, they are preoccupied with defining populations in a different way based largely on language, for example, and Oxoy does mm-hmm. not see that as the operative category. So one of the main arguments I'm actually trying to get at it in my dissertation is that while we now perceive Western scientists really be running the show in these great uh, collections of genetic research that they were working predominantly on these subaltern sort of colonial populations out there in the non-West and they were the ones responsible for generating all the data. In fact, we see that there's an entire middle layer of people who's really ignored in this process. And that is characters like Muzaffar Aksoy, who is certainly not a subaltern character. He is representative in many ways of uh, the sort of elite class of Turkish scientists who are representative of, you know, the basically the hegemonic nation-state culture that Turkey is trying to promote for itself. And so even though there's this skepticism that we can detect, you know, reading very finely between the lines on the part of the British scientists. They ultimately accept this term, Eti Turk, and they use it, you know, without any problem, without challenge in their publications. And that's how this term has become normal. This, this term, which nobody really uses in Turkey today for this population group, uh, has now been really immortalized, uh, specifically in Anglophone genetics publications. Um, and so it's through these, these sort of lingering threads we can find evidence of this interaction between what I'm referring to as the local Middle Eastern scientists who are elites in their own countries, but are often written out of the global story of genetics research in favor of these more famous Western scientists. For example, I'm thinking of JBS Haldane, other characters who we still find in our general high school biology books. They were working directly um, with Middle Eastern researchers, had long uh, relationships of collaboration and correspondence. So one of the questions that I arrive at at the very end of my dissertation, I'm hoping to explore in my future, future research, is what actually is the meaning of scientific collaboration so what what does this collaboration really mean? What kinds of asymmetrical geopolitical power relationships are we looking at mm-hmm, when we think mm-hmm. of scientific collaboration?
2: And one of the sort of pictures you've painted for us here in this discussion of your research is just how much, for example, genetic research today is not necessarily divining out truths from biological material that is in our bodies and that science, uh, uses in order to understand who we are and how populations have moved or, or stayed in one place throughout time and have been related to, um, but it's actually a very complicated mishmash of very old ways of thinking about race, about ancestry, and you know understandings of of of, of, of human bodies. And I want to give our listeners a little preview because we are concluding the interview now. Um, In a little bonus segment with Elise, what we're actually going to be doing is looking at a present-day example of genetic research, in fact, genomic research about uh, historical migration uh, conducted on yours truly, my own um, genetic uh, testing results from the National Geographic Genographic Project. Um, And we'll be talking about the science behind those results sort of within the context of the historical conversation. Uh, we've been having
0: thank you Miriam and Chris for being here today and of course thanks so much Elise for coming on the podcast thank you so much for having thanks me. Elise Thanks, Elise. and our listeners who are interested in learning more about this topic can find a select bibliography provided to us by Elise on the website that's www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com join us next time